Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. As you turn there, I'm going to pray once more. Father, I come to you knowing that I can do nothing on my own. I can only do what what you allow me to do. Lord, if I don't abide in Christ, I can do nothing. And so, Father, as I preach now, would you help me to abide in him and him in me? Lord, I pray that you give me joy in yourself. Give me joy in the richness of your word. And give me joy in the fact that I get to herald your good news right now. I pray for those who are here listening. I pray that you give them joy in yourself and joy in what you've done in the gospel or joy in who they are in you. And I pray that you give them joy in their calling to go out and, and reach those around them who, who, who are in their lives with that gospel. And so I pray that you would empower us all now to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Continuing through John this morning, um, we're in, <clears throat> in the second part of John 6. Um, next week, I will actually, someone else will be preaching. Um, I have been asked by um, <clears throat> my campus minister in Kentucky to come up and teach a retreat. Um, so, so we're going up there, and, and I'm, we're going to see my family there for Thanksgiving while we're there. Um, so next week, Matthew Waldrop will be preaching here. Um, he is Joanna Graves' cousin. He was actually an interim here um, before Larry Layfield came back um, for a few months. So um, he's going to be preaching the next passage in John because I have it set up right now to where we will get to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so I can't miss any more Sundays in this. So um, COVID kind of set me back there. John 6, verse 22 is where we'll start. Um, there was a race that I ran up in my, at my seminary, um, a 5K that they did. I ran it three times. Um, the first time I did okay. The second time I ran the entire race, never stopped. I was pretty proud of myself. The third time was after Adrian and I got married. Before Adrian and I got married, I would exercise three to five times a week. After we got married, I, it was maybe once a week. Um, just didn't have time anymore. So I ran this third race, and um, I made the biggest mistake that you make when you run a race. I just took off right at the beginning. I ran with everything I had, and about a quarter of a mile in, that's all I had, and I had to stop and start walking the rest of the race. Um, so I walked the rest of it. it. It's that thing, if you've ever ran a 5K, there's a car that follows behind. That's the end of the line. That thing was like 50 yards back from me the entire race. And I get about a, a mile and a half through it, and I look over, and I'm like, huh, the finish line's right over that hill. So I, I mean, I could walk the other mile and a half of the track, or I could just be done with this thing. Um, because I, I, when the race gets hard, when the race is no longer easy, the temptation is to quit. And that's true of the Christian life as well. There's a reason the Christian life is described as a race. 
in that regard. So John 6, um, I'm going to read the rest of this chapter in three parts. So we're going to read 22 to 40, and then I'll jump back in in a little bit. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you all. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who, who he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from, from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe." All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. <clears throat> We did the first part of John 6 a couple weeks ago. If you remember, um, that was meant to bring to our mind the Exodus. Um, God leading the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and then they get to the wilderness and the manna is provided to them. This is meant to be the second episode of that. It's this place where the, where the grumbling happens in the wilderness. Um, the, these are hungry people coming to Jesus. They um, kind of saw that the disciples left in one boat. They never saw another boat go out, so they assumed Jesus must have gone a different way. So they take a different way. They go and they find him, and they're seeking Jesus. Sort of. They're, they don't necessarily want Jesus. They, they want what he can give them. A really good portion of food, which they just got the day before. And Jesus knows that about them. He knows all people. It, when they ask him, when, when did you get here? In verse 25, he basically ignores their question and just cuts straight to the point. He says, listen, I, I know you people. You're seeking me not, not, not because you understood the sign I performed, but because you want more food. You want more of that free bread that I gave you. It's like most people. If you offer free food, they'll come, especially if they're in college. Okay? Uh, free food always brings people around. But it's the sad reality with these people, and it's the sad reality with, with many today. People want Jesus, not for Jesus himself, but for what Jesus can give them. What he can give them. They want Jesus to give them more food. These people do. There are a number of things people today want from Jesus. 
There's a reason most Americans say they believe in God, yet we see so few of them living lives for God. Because people want God for the things He can give them, not for Him Himself. They, they want God to make their dreams come true, to heal their loved one, to make their life more comfortable and successful. But they do not want to submit to the God of Scripture. That, that They make a God in their own image, a God who is more like a genie than the God in the Bible. We come to Him when we want something, we ask Him of that, and then we leave Him alone. These people are seeking the, the, the hand of Christ, not His face. They don't want to see His face. And Jesus can see right through it. He can see right through it. Jesus looks at them in verse 27 and He says, Look, look, you, you, there's something greater here than that bread that I gave you. That bread I gave you yesterday, it's not going to satisfy you. There's something greater that can, though. You want Jesus so much to give you this thing, but it's going to perish. You're shooting too low, is what he says. That scholarship you wanted to give to you, or that promotion, or that dollar amount, it's not going to satisfy. It's going to perish. It's not going to last. It's bread. It's going to get moldy, and it's going to go bad. And it's all people can think about. I want that thing that's not going to last very long. You, they can't see past the bread and see the real glory standing in front of them. And that's Jesus. He, he tells them, look, do what I'm telling you to do and you'll get bread that won't perish. You will get something glorious. And they ask him, okay, then what do we got to do? Verse 28, what do we have to do? What work do we have to do? They were used to working. That's what the Pharisees told them constantly. You have to work to earn God's favor. You have to be a good temple person, a good church person to have God's favor. And maybe that's your view of God as well. That is, maybe you think, you know, I haven't been praying enough lately, so God probably isn't happy with me. I think I'll just sit over in the timeout corner a little more and, and wait. Hopefully he'll stop being mad at me. Maybe you think, well, I've been going to church, so God owes me a blessing. Maybe you think, I'm, I'm a good person. I don't deserve any suffering to fall on me. But you honestly think you can work to earn God's favor like that? Is it not written in Ephesians 2, For by grace you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. You can't work your way to approval by God. He approves of you by His grace completely. Not by anything you did, but because of what Jesus did. That is, we don't pray and go to church and live a moral life to earn God's favor. We do it because we have God's favor. We've been given His favor through Christ. You know what I'm hearing from a lot of pastors right now, and I resonate with it? Even with the best churches I know, I'm, I'm hearing um, people have gotten complacent. Most churches aren't seeing more than 50% of their pre-COVID crowd at church. Ex church experts are saying 20% of people who came to your church before COVID will never come back. 20%. That's, I can't do the math in my head, but we average about 150 on a Sunday before COVID, so you do the math on that. 20% of people will never come back to your church. And so here's what I want to say to that. It, it, and if you're watching on Facebook Live right now, maybe this is a time to listen. If you're legitimately staying home because of concerns, you're older, you're medically fragile, if you're legitimately staying home from everything to avoid COVID, that's one thing. But if you're going everywhere in Tifton but not coming to church because you don't feel safe, you've got to check your heart on that. You just do. 
We attend church not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor. So if you're not coming to church, do you understand the favor God has on you? Jesus says, all you got to do is believe. That's the work you got to do. Just believe in me. That's the only work that you have to do. And what do they say? Verse 30. Okay, we'll believe. Show us a sign and we'll believe. God gave us manna in the wilderness. What are you going to do? And us as the reader are thinking, hello, he just fed 20,000 people yesterday with a pizza Lunchable. Like, like what, what more do you want? Jesus gave you bread in the wilderness. What more do you need than that miracle? That, that bread was pointing to something. It's pointing to Jesus. Verse 35, He is the bread of life. Whoever comes to Him shall never hunger. Whoever believes in Him shall never thirst. There's a spiritual meaning behind the bread He gave them from heaven. There's a spiritual meaning behind it. It was a sign to point to the fact that God has provided spiritual bread that never perishes. He's provided something greater than the material things you want. But, but we have to have a spiritual lens to see that thing or we'll miss it. We'll miss it. This is the first time in John that he's going to say, I am something. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the, um, I am the uh, resurrection and the life. We'll see each one of those as we're going through John. It's meant to make you think of Exodus 3. God asked Mo Moses asked God, what's your name? And he says, I am that's my name. It's meant to point to that. But it's this common message in John that Jesus brings satisfaction greater than anything you can imagine. You remember John 4? Uh, you're you're going to keep drinking water out of that well and it's never going to satisfy you. I can give you the living water. You will be satisfied by that water. Or you're going to see next week in John 7, Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. And here he says... If you come to me, you'll never hunger. If you believe in me, you will never thirst. And these people can't see that. They'll never be satisfied. But some will. Some will believe. Verse 37, Jesus says something beautiful about, about those people who will believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Two statements there. First, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What does that mean? Well, um, if salvation is completely of God, God reveals Jesus to us through the Holy Spirit, and we come running to Him in faith. It's that combination. But does this, does this verse imply that, that God forces us to be Christians? Because it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Is that implying that, that we are forced to it? Well, not exactly. No. So, so think of it this way. Back in 2016, I um, went to a get-together at a friend's house. I went to that get-together, and there was a girl there. I never really interacted with her, but I knew who she was. And I interacted with her a lot that night, got to know her some, and found her to be attractive. And I went home that night thinking about her. And I thought about her for the next several weeks, every single day, until finally I asked her to be my girlfriend and got married to her. I couldn't help it. I was attracted to her. That's what's going on here. God doesn't force you to be a Christian. He simply reveals Jesus to you. And when you truly see him, you can't help but run to him because of how beautiful he is. And then look at the next one. Wow, look at this. 
Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never cast out. When you read this in Greek, it's even more dramatic than that. It's something like, I will never, ever cast you out. I will never, ever, 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 ever under any circumstance cast you out from my presence. I'm yours forever and you're mine forever. If you belong to Jesus, he will never cast you out. He will never stop loving you. He'll never decide, you know, I've put up with a lot of stuff, but they've just offended me too much. I'm done with them. He'll never do that. Do you understand the depth of his love for you? He loves you infinitely. You you cannot lose the love of Christ on your life in his favor of you. You cannot. Now, no matter how much you run away, he will always come to you and get you and bring you back. Because it's not ultimately about you holding on to Christ. It's about Christ holding on to you. So imagine, imagine a couple years when my son is two years old and we're at the beach and we're walking on the beach and I'm holding his hand and we're in the water. Let's say the water's really hectic that day. It's, it's brushing in. There's going to be a certain depth of that water that I can hold my son and that my son can walk in that. But when we get to a certain depth, those waves are going to take him down. But if I'm holding on to him, those waves will not take him down because I've got him. And that's what, that's what it's like being in the hand of Christ. That's what his grip on you is like. He will never let the waves destroy you. It's the will of God, Jesus says, verse 39, that, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. He will not lose you. You haven't screwed up too much. You haven't been unworthy enough. You haven't sinned enough. He will not lose you. It's a promise that I will raise them up on the last day. I will do that. This is the whole point of this bread that comes down from heaven. And you would think with such good news, these people would hear this and cry out in worship. What incredible news is this? Let's worship. But that's not what they do. Let's read verses 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from God comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am... I got backwards there. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last 
day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on the flesh, on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. You would think they would cry out and worship at such good news that Jesus has just shared with them, but they do the exact opposite. They grumble. They grumble. They, they say, who is this? We know this kid. He's Joseph's son. We know who this guy is. They're just grumbling. He doesn't know anything he's talking about. He's gotten a little too big for his britches. We're meant to continue thinking of the Exodus here. Remember, God provided the manna in the wilderness, and they weren't satisfied. They said, Lord, could you please give us some peanut butter to go with this? This isn't good enough. We need more. And just understand that grumbling is a sin. It's a sin that most of us are okay with. It's a sin that most of us are okay with because, honestly, it's so common and minor in our eyes that we wouldn't dare condemn it. Grumbling is common to us all. Some people come to church just to have a place to grumble. Have you been on Facebook lately? It's full of grumbling. I'm taking the whole month off. I did that originally because I didn't want to see all the afterworks of the election. And it has been wonderful. I have had such less angst in my heart not being on Facebook for eight days now. It's incredible. You should try it because it's just a place that people gr go to grumble. Grumbling is one of my most common sins, and if I fill my head with too much grumbling from other people, I will grumble. But grumbling isn't something minor. It's essentially you telling your Creator you don't like how He's running the world. You think He's doing something wrong. Because if we're honest, we grumble about the dumbest things. You know, so I'll be cooking dinner, as I was doing last night, and I, I take those big Bugs Bunny carrots, you know, the really long ones, and I'm cutting it up. And when you're cutting that up, eventually you cut one and it shoots off like a 22 Magnum across your house, right? And so you do that, and that happens, and it flies on the floor, and I see that, and I'm like, oh, I wanted that! I mean, I've got 30 more pieces of carrot here on the cutting board, but for some reason that just set me off. And what I'm really saying behind that is, God, in your sovereign power, you should have stopped that carrot from falling on that floor. Why'd you do that? Our sins are greater than we imagine. Grumbling is greater than we imagine. What's the opposite of grumbling? Well, it's contentment and it's praise. The thing that they're not doing. Jesus keeps elaborating on this teaching and it starts to get really weird in the stuff that he's saying. He tells them, if you're going to have eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What in the world, Jesus? You're getting loony. What does this mean? Well, probably the first thing you think of is the Lord's Supper. That's probably the first thought that comes to mind. I don't think it's the Lord's Supper for three reasons. First of all, that hasn't been established yet in the life of Jesus, so not even his disciples would know what he was talking about. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is always phrased as the bread is his body, not his flesh. And thirdly, it says that if you do this, you get eternal life. And taking the Lord's Supper does not give you eternal life. So what's he talking about? Because it literally sounds like he's wanting us to become cannibals. What is this that's going on? It's just simply this. Jesus is figuratively saying, if you want to have eternal life, you must feast on him. You must feast on him through faith. 
He obviously doesn't expect you to take a bite out of his arm. He needs you to feast on him through faith. This is what it means to come to Jesus and find life in him. You feast on him like you're satisfied by a good meal. That's, that's what your relationship with Jesus is like. But why would he phrase it in such a weird way? Because obviously people are going to hear this and be like, what is this? This guy is a few french fries short of a happy meal. What's going on with him? And just understand what Jesus does when he teaches in his life. He will share truth for so long. And as people continually reject it, he will begin hiding it and veiling it behind these kinds of words. It's a common principle in Scripture. God conceals the truth from those who continually reject it. So you think of Pharaoh in Exodus. God sends the ten plagues to, to Egypt. The first five after each one of them in Exodus, you see that Pharaoh rejects it and he hardens his own heart. Then six through ten, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That is, Pharaoh rejected God so much that finally God just begins doing it for him. You're too far gone here. You're not going to listen. The more you harden your heart to Christ, the less and less available Christ becomes to you, and the less you will want him. And there comes a point at which Christ will hide the truth as a judgment against you. So with hard teachings like this, what do we do? Well, you can respond in a few different ways. We see those responses in the final part of the chapter. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Three ways people respond to Jesus after he teaches this. First is they desert him. That's verses 60 through 65. They desert him. They leave him. I've mentored several guys in my life um, as they've become Christians and, and started walking with Jesus. I've mentored many of them. And many of them have turned out very well. Many of them have become pastors. Um, some of them, though, have left the faith. Some of them would call themselves today an atheist. Um, many of them truly believed the Bible. They saw, I saw them serve on mission projects. I saw them sing in worship. But there came a point in which their biblical view did not jive with the view that the world was putting forth to them. And they had to make a choice. Which one are they going to hold to? And they chose the world. This may happen to some of your kids and grandkids when they go off to college. God, please don't let that happen to them. But public universities eat Christian kids for, for breakfast. They just do. So parents, grandparents, it's your job to instill the Christian faith in your kids primarily. 
Don't leave it up to me, Clint and Samantha alone, because we get them about three hours a week. They get a lot more than that on just social media, telling them what to think. It's up to you to instill the faith in your kids and grandkids. The Bible says it's your job primarily. If you lead a life at home that gives little thought to Christ, don't be surprised when your kids are less committed to Christ than you are. If you don't know anything about what you believe, don't be surprised when one lesson from a college professor argues your kids into becoming atheists. Notice these first people that desert Jesus, what are they called here? They're called disciples. Verse 60, disciples. Verse 66, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They're not born again in the way that we understand it, or they wouldn't have left, but they were following him. They were, they were walking with him. We know 1 John 2, 19, they, they went out from us because they were not of us. Matthew 24, 13, those who endure to the end will be saved. You prove you were truly born again when you endure to the end. When you reach the end of your life and you're still following Jesus, that's proof that you were actually born again when you came to Christ. We have people all over the United States who at one time walked an aisle and prayed a prayer that the pastor told them to repeat, and they're not following Christ today. And those people probably never came to know Him. They went out from us because they were not of us. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. So why do these people leave Jesus? Well, they say this is a hard teaching. It's too much for them to handle. So they hop the fence and they go straight to the finish line instead of finishing the race. So some people will hear the words of Jesus and they will leave him. We have a second group, 66 through 69. Some people respond in faith. One group leaves Jesus, one group responds in faith. They respond to him in faith. This is the group you want to be in. Jesus looks at the 12 disciples and he says, Do you want to leave also like all these other people are? And Peter stands up and speaks for them. He says, Where in the world are we going to go? We've got no one else to go to than you. You're the one with eternal life. We've got nowhere else to go. It's one of my favorite verses in John 67 there. No, 68, I'm sorry. What, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He is our hope. Make this your commitment. We've got nowhere else to go. Jesus is our only hope. He's the Holy One from God. Jesus is our church's only hope. He's our family's only hope. He's our nation's only hope. He's our only hope in all of our life and when we come to the point of our death. Christ alone is your hope. Don't put your hope in anybody else. He alone is your hope. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Because there's a third response here. It's verses 70 and 71. Jesus looks at them and he says, You're the twelve, I chose you. And then under his breath he says, But one of you is a devil. What well, one of you is a devil. In other words, eleven of you are represented by what Peter just said. One of you is not. One of you is faking it. One of you is hanging out with me, but you don't really believe in me. And you're deceived. You're deceiving everyone around you into thinking you are one of them. Remember when they had the Last Supper and Jesus says, One of you is going to betray me tonight. What do the disciples say? They say, Oh no, is it me? I hope it's not me. None of them look at Judas and say, well, duh, it's that guy. 
None of them do that. They all wonder, is it me? Judas is that good at hiding it. He's so good at hiding it, the disciples don't even mind that he's the one, he's the church treasurer. He's the one carrying around the money bag. They don't even recognize it. Maybe they should have said, hey, maybe we put this with Andrew, not with, not with Judas Iscariot, but they don't realize that. Friend, you should examine yourself and see if you're truly Peter or if you're Judas. Because the detrimental thing is that Judas belonged to that first group, the ones who would leave Jesus, the, the ones who would depart. He didn't agree with Jesus' teaching. He had no interest in following it. But instead of, living, instead of leaving him, he lived a lie. He stayed with Jesus in person, but not in his heart. Is your heart really in it with Jesus? Is your life really in it with Jesus? That is, when you read hard teachings of Jesus like this, do you hear and obey, or do you ignore? Friend, if you're Judas, one day there will be no hope for you. Judas did not have eternal life. Judas was literally willing to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, and when that was so unsatisfying to him, he took it back and then went and killed himself. That's where Judas ended up. There's no more hope for Judas. There's still hope for you. Are you truly satisfied in Jesus? Would you describe your faith in Him as, a cons as consuming every part of your life? That when you come to Him, it's like you're feasting? Or do you just associate with Him? That is, you call yourself a Christian, but really, if Jesus didn't exist, nothing in your life would change that much, except maybe an hour on Sunday morning a couple times a month. Friend, Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. If you come to Him, you will have such a hunger-quenching taste. Your life will be transformed. Is that your life? Has that happened to you? Come while there's still time. Don't end up like Judas. Come to Jesus. Because all that the Father gives Him will come to Him. And whoever comes to Him will never be cast out by Him. Don't you want that? Then come. Let's pray. Lord, what beautiful words that, that we will never be cast out by you. That if we are yours, you will hold on to us forever. We will be with you forever. We will never be taken away from you. Oh God, what glorious truth in that. I pray that every person here takes pure joy and hope in that, Lord. Would you work that joy in their lives? Lord, I pray if there's any here who don't know you, that they would come running to Jesus. Show Jesus to them right now in their heart that they would do nothing but come running to Him because of how beautiful He is. Lord, for those who know Him, may they go out with that joy in their heart today that cannot be quenched by anything in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Caleb's going to sing a song. I'll be here at the